Hello and welcome back to this, the third episode of the BSG Uncut podcast. My name's Martin Hirsch. I'm a consultant gynaecologist here in Oxford, England. This month, we're joined by Professor Christian Becker, a legend in the field of endometriosis research, who's making discoveries down a microscope before I could even spell microscope. Thankfully for me, he's now a close colleague and my senior mentor here in Oxford. Professor Becker is the clinical lead and co-director of the Endometriosis Care Centre. This is one of the largest BSG-accredited endometriosis centres. And apart from his clinical work, Professor Becker is passionate about research, including the identification of potential biomarkers and improving the categorisation of endometriosis. He was co-opted member of the NICE Guideline Committee for Endometriosis and is the current chair of the ESHRAE Endometriosis Guideline Development Group. So welcome, Christian. Thank you very much for having me. Not at all. It's good for you to be able to join the uh, BSG podcast. Um, for those people, I'm sure everyone does know you and your name is, is world known in the sphere of endometriosis. But can you tell me a little bit more about how and why you went into gynecology uh, and particularly a little bit about your time at Harvard University? Yeah, so um, my, my um, medical career started um, in, in Germany, actually. Um, I... Um, I went to university, well, actually, initially in, in Budapest in Hungary for two years, and then uh, um, did um, medical school mostly in, in Germany. Um, and um, during that time, um, I um, I just, you know, liked gynecology quite a bit and, and therefore went for extra sessions. Um, I took part in um, some obstetric, uh, um, you know, sessions, um, came for deliveries and... Um, then also volunteered to come out uh, to um, some reproductive medicine clinics. And I, I very much enjoyed that. Also, personally, I come from a, a surgical background um, and um, I didn't want to do general surgery um, like um, I was used to from home, uh, but I, I definitely liked surgery. So I thought gynecology was a very good um, uh, approach there. Um, and um, after studying in in Berlin, um, I um, did uh, part of my training there, um, and then went for two years or two and a half years almost uh, to um, Boston, and um, did a, my first postdoc um, in uh, vascular um, biology. Uh, back then, uh, there was a very famous uh, person, um, Judah Folkman who uh, was working on angiogenesis and anti-angiogenic therapy. And initially I was working on, on tumors uh, and then eventually on endometriosis. Um, so I went back to uh, Germany to finish my general obstetrics training. Uh, I wanted to do a REI fellowship then uh, in, uh, in the U- uh, US, but it was very difficult to get in uh, as an outsider. So you would have had to go through the entire American system again. Uh, and so I decided to do a second postdoc uh, in the lab, uh, but I had um, a connection also to the um, Brigham Women's Hospital, where in the lab I, I worked on a lot of endometriosis, um, a few um, uh, models that we had, um, again, on angiogenesis and um, possibility of treating endometriosis with angiogenesis inhibitors, which at least in the, in the models worked very well. And um, then I decided to go back um, to um, to Europe. My wife uh, was doing a PhD over there as well, and I wanted to go to a, a center, you know, similar to what we were used to in uh, in uh, at Harvard, 
and uh, Oxford was uh, a very good, um, you know, a possibility there where both of us found a job. And since then, I've been here. I've been. Um, uh, I, I was doing a um, uh, RCOG subspecialty training in reproductive medicine uh, initially, um, and then um, became a consultant in two thousand and nine. Um, and then more recently, I've been leading the um, uh, BSG center here uh, clinically as well. Fantastic! That sounds like a really interesting and um, unusual course or path for people to take that that, that many probably haven't travelled. But um, you, you haven't mentioned anything about the the frat parties out in in Harvard, Christian. Could you uh, expand on those? Well, you know, um, it's 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 been a while, so my my memory is um, you know it happens with age, you forget things. So, so. What goes on in Harvard stays in Harvard. Exactly. Exactly. And we currently work together in Oxford, but you know, from seeing what you do, you have one of the most fantastic, varied job plans as an, an academic, an endometriosis specialist, a reproductive medicine and reproductive surgical specialist, and also lead for paediatric gynecology. Um, and other than the amazing variety that you have, what do you enjoy most about your current role and what you do here in Oxford? Well, you know, the, this this variety is you know has has two sorts, so. On one hand, it's fantastic because, you know, there's so many things that, you know, I can do and, um, you know, every day it's something new and it does, it does not get boring at all. Um, on the other hand, you know, this um, half academic, half um, clinical job also sometimes um, it has a negative side because, you know, as an academic, um, you always feel like you're, you know, uh, regarded as the academic from, uh, by the clinicians and you know you just don't have more than 24 hours in a day to to do things and it is clear that certain things you know my, my clinical colleagues are better at um, and just because they do it more often and we all know that medicine is all about experience and how often do you do things especially when it comes to surgery um, so that's something that um, you know I have to um, be aware of and I'm, I'm fully aware of um, but I, I very much enjoy the, um, the possibility of do translational research. So because I have this, this direct contact uh, to the patients, um, you know, I can include them into clinical studies or um, also ask them for um, you know, biological samples uh, for our um, um, more basic uh, studies or translational studies that we have um, going on here. Um, I work with um, uh, Prina Zonovan, who's um, my head of department now as well here, the department uh, in, in university. And together we run the endometriosis care center from a research perspective. Um, and, um, you know, as that, um, in, in that we have a, a very large um, group of fantastic uh, postdocs and students. And that's very um, uh, encouraging, you know, to see that, you know, some of the studies that we are doing are, slowly but uh, surely also progressing the field um, to a certain extent as well no i have um been following your work and i think i get updates on google scholar for all your publications and it it is very very frequent do you, do you think you could tell us a little bit more about your current research work and um, and the things you're doing here in oxford if they're not not too secret no there's nothing secret about it and i think we are more and more encouraged to try to get uh, the message out to the general public because 
you know, a lot of the research is funded by the, by public money as well. So I think that's that's very clear. Um, and also, we're we're you know dependent on our patients to give us samples. So one of the things that we do is that women who are undergoing laparoscopy for suspected endometriosis, for example, we ask them to donate uh, various um, you know bodily fluids, blood, urine, saliva. Um, and also some tissue during the time of uh, surgery. So when, when they're asleep, we, we take some endometriosis tissue and some biopsies from the endometrium or the, from the fat as well sometimes. Um, because um, we do not, or one of the, the problems that we have clinically is that we still have huge problems diagnosing endometriosis. Um, so about 10, well, yeah, or, Right, ten years ago or so, I had a um, an excellent um, uh, PhD student or DPhil student, as they say in, in Oxford, um, who was looking at a very specific biomarker that we were interested in. And um, um, you know, in order to get this going, I asked her to to read all the literature, obviously, and uh, she did. Uh, but um, also, I wanted her to do some, um, you know, to to write this up because otherwise, you know, it's a bit of wasted um, effort uh, to a certain extent. And she was able to publish this very nicely um, in Human Reproduction Update, um, looking at the biomarkers that out that were out there. There were tons of them, um, um, you know, lots of studies. But the problem was always that the um, the studies were either very small or um, the controls were a bit questionable. Sometimes they had males as as controls, and then also uh, we saw that multiple studies. Um, which were looking at the same molecule, for example, often had um, uh, different results, sometimes opposing results. And what we found out was that uh, there was no standardization of how to collect samples, for example, or to collect, collect data from patients. And then um, Krina Zondervan um, here with uh, Stacey Misma in, in Boston, who I had met uh, years ago then when I was doing my, my time, um, at uh, at Harvard, and under this, the um, uh, the um, uh, supervision or the guidance of the World Endometriosis Research Foundation, we we um, work together with a lot of uh, colleagues, some in the UK, some internationally, to uh, deliver those uh, or to you know I guess to um, uh, assess those standards. And um, now we're able to collect samples and data throughout the world. Um, at, this, at the same level, so we can we know that patient X, who's uh, coming through the door with uh, this and that sim symptom, will be very similar to the same uh, to another patient uh, in, in, a, in a place somewhere else around the world, and therefore the samples are comparable as well because endometriosis is such a heterogeneous condition, and therefore we are able to um, conduct potential biomarker studies in the future. In order to do that, however, you need to have huge um, databases and sample collections. So, you know, with the um, old style, uh, you know, 30 patients and 30 controls, you're not going to be able to really make a difference. And, and that's something that we are working on very strongly here in Oxford with, you know, help of, from you know, people like you and my, my other colleagues uh, in the endometriosis care center. Uh, we've been able to collect samples from more than a thousand uh, patients so far, and you know, we continue to do that. And it's amazing how motivated women are to help with this because they've been suffering so much from endometriosis and the associated symptoms.
So that's one of the things that we do. Um, and then there are um, other studies. So um, Krina Zondervan, who's a, a world leader in um, genetic epidemiology, um, she is very much looking at the genetic and the genomic um, sides of, of endometriosis. Um, and then we do some smaller studies looking into uh, the pathogenesis of, um, of, of endometriosis as well. Lovely. And the standardization that you were referring to, was there the WERF EPECT tools, is that right, published in Fertility and Sterility? Exactly. And the, the nice thing about this is that these tools are now freely available to anyone. Uh, so if, if you are interested in uh, doing research on endometriosis, those protocols are you know, available. Um, and, um, and I think so far more than 40, I think probably close to 50 uh, centers around the world are using these, um, these protocols. Um, and it's, you know, if you have a academic interest and, and um, uh, access to, to funds as well, um, I think it's, it's definitely the way forward. Also, um, if you go to the uh, WORF um, website, you can sign up there um, and you become visible to to the outside world. And we have been able to fund a lot of studies through that uh, with the help of industry, for example, because they are obviously interested in getting some of the samples to, you know, sometimes in collaboration, sometimes for themselves, to um, develop um, either new diagnostic tools, but also for target discovery of, um, of potential new um, 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 medical uh, treatments as, uh, as well. Great, and uh, I'd realised this before, but there's, you know, there's a reasonable amount of overlap between the, my, my previous academic work of trying to standardise uh, outcome collecting data in clinical research with the standardisation of the kind of basic science uh, tools that you've developed with with WERF uh, and the the EPET tools. So um, it's hopefully a, a harmonious marriage we've got here with uh, basic science and clinical data standardisation. No, I agree, and um, you know we we. I mean, the standardization that we did was very much focused on, on I guess, lab or epidemiological research, whereas uh, what, what you did with, with um, you know, your colleagues uh, in the past um, is very, very helpful and, um, you know, I think absolutely essential as well um, to do proper clinical studies because, um, you know, there have been um, so many studies um, done that are not necessarily very helpful we've we've just finished um i was just sitting on the computer at the very very final version of the escher guidelines which are hopefully going to come out in the next very few weeks um and on, on endometriosis and um you know there are studies out there but the quality of these studies is often uh, relatively poor and sometimes very poor um and therefore you know a lot of things that we do um, where we think they are really evidence-based, um, you know, the evidence or the quality of this ev of the evidence is, is, you know, it could be much better. And, um, you know, having um, standardized ways of um, assessing um, these, these outcomes uh, clinically is um, of enormous um, um, importance. Thank you very much for the plug for the work that, that myself uh, James Duffy and, and Cindy Farquhar have been doing um, with yeah. Cochrane um, and um, yeah I, I hope it like together both standardizing basic science and standardizing clinical research 
will help us to develop more effective diagnostic and therapeutic strategies. Um, but but we still see in, in some settings that there is a divide between academics and surgeons. Uh, and what do you think it is that, that hinders the specialty ad advancing? Because as you said, we, we are still so far behind in understanding what, what causes endometriosis and what therapies we can use to be effective for endometriosis itself. Well, I think there are various factors. One is that well, funding is an issue. Um, I mean, I think this has been clearly identified as a major issue in this uh, recent um, all-party parliamentary um, um, paper that came out um, very, you know, six months ago or so. Um, and um, if, if you compare, you know, other conditions that have a similar prevalence as endometriosis, uh, the funding that is available for us um, is, you know, minuscule. Uh, so, um, you know, no wonder that, um, you know, we have relatively little, uh, f um, you know, studies available. And studies meaning, you know, both you know, basic but also translational and uh, purely clinical. You know, fortunately, at the moment, there are, I think, uh, two or three NIHR-funded um, endometriosis studies that are going on. Uh, one is the ESPRI-2 study, uh, looking at um, uh, superficial endometriosis and whether actually surgery improves um, quality of life and pain scores afterwards. Then there's another one that's starting at the moment, um, a Regal study, uh, looking at um, treatment for for endometriosis, uh, surgical treatment versus generic um, agonists. And then there's another study, I think, coming from uh, from Birmingham uh, soon as well. So um, there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but um, we still have a you know long way to go. And you know another factor is that um, well we are all very busy, and um, um, there is also on on the clinical side temptation that you know if you're an endometriosis surgeon to go into private practice, um, you make, um, one. we all are very well paid, obviously, already, but you can make a lot of money um, doing that as well. Um, academia does not pay very well, necessarily. Um, and, you know, that's probably another factor that we have to keep in mind. Um, and um, I think probably more importantly is, as well is that during our training, um, we are not really taught academia a lot. Um, so I think the, the training is very clinically focused and we all know about the issues that we have with clinical training for gynecology already um, um, and there's not enough emphasis on, on academia. So I think if we could highlight that more and you know, for us as people who have an academic background and interest, you know, for us also to highlight to our trainees, um, you know, look, this is this is fun, this is good. Um, you know, separate from what's in the curriculum, maybe we can convince more trainees to go into academia or you know, partial academia, um, and that would be a, a very big step forward already, I believe. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, certainly since I started, at, obviously not about ten years ago, not that long ago. There seems to have been a move towards kind of separating the pathway for academic training and so those people that are need to be identified at a very early stage to go into academia with these 
academic foundation program training and then academic clinical lectureships um, that are required whereas the kind of the old-fashioned approach of a of a consultant doing a bit of research every year and, and progressing that way seem, seems to be a, a, a bit old-fashioned yeah i agree i agree um it, it is it is a problem but you know these this these decisions the the trainees have to make them relatively early also because it becomes very competitive when you know you want to do academic career you have to in order to get funding later on you already have to have a an excellent CV um, and you know the, the money for uh, for uh, for research, as I said, is, is you know very limited already, and therefore it's it's very tricky to get any form of funding um, if your if your CV is okay but not you know, absolutely uh, superb. Um, so, um, but also you know if you're if you're further down the line in your training. Um, I'm sure there's lots of people who would like to do a bit more academia, but um, you know the it may be a bit too late then uh, at that at that point to go into this um, uh, just because um, uh, at least I'm not aware of any proper ways of entering this uh, at that point with a reasonable chance of of success. Yeah, it does seem like it, it it's an area that you need to kind of commit to early. Um, and invest in heavily as a junior doctor to get into to academia whereas if it's um, if that's not the case then you're kind of likely to be on the peripheries and and, and be able to to join in with with research projects and, uh, and assist on pieces but but unlikely to be an, an academic leader of the future like like yourself and Karina mm, yeah I agree and t talking about the, the research studies that, that you mentioned, I'm really excited about Esprit um, being, I think, being run out of Edinburgh with with Andrew Horn. Um, I think I'd be cautious with with with, with the um, my suggestions of the outcome. But if you know if no benefit is proven from surgical treatment of superficial peritoneal endometriosis, it could certainly smooth. The referral and diagnostic pathway um, where we have historically always taken a negative MRI or a negative ultrasound with a pinch of salt because we know it doesn't include peritoneal endometriosis if if we can exclude surgery as an intervention for this condition then we can almost try and speed the pathway for those patients towards a medical gynecologist and those patients no, with agree. pathology I mean, the, the, the problem though still will be that you know um even, even though let's say sp2 um shows you know no significant benefit in treatment and who knows just just for, for the fun of it now um there will still be a lot of patients who would like to have a laparoscopy just to be able to show you know yes i have endometriosis um and you know this empowerment of um of, of women is still a, a huge factor because our our way of identifying endometriosis is is poor i mean for for superficial disease um and um you know just to uh, to say well yes we think that you have endometriosis and it's um uh we do empirical treatment you know clinically that's probably correct but um for a lot of women um it will be um i, I think or a lot of women will ask for um, you know, more proof that they have endometriosis before they take, you know, medication, which has a lot of side effects as well, often, and, and, and so on. Plus, that, you know, they can 
prove to their to their uh, environment that they haven't made you know these symptoms up for the last ten years or how long, however long they've been um, they've been suffering, and that is a, a big problem that we still face. I completely agree, and that validation and verification um, can really open doors to to tailored medical treatment and and you know support groups and 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 wider um, access to to care and and, and peer support that's now heavily on, online and in social media groups. But I guess playing devil's advocate, you could say from a a, a health um, finance and and particularly in austere times, you know whether an invasive, expensive procedure just to diagnose a condition um, is justified. And I guess that that's a debate for um, health economics uh, experts to have at a later date. No, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, one thing that um, we have to keep in mind then as well is, you know, the, the ovarian or the deep endometriosis. Um, where does it come from? I mean, is it really a totally different entity or does it develop from superficial disease or does part of it you know some women develop from from that and um you know we in order to to learn more about um you know superficial endometriosis in general i think we need to still continue to um you know uh, get biopsies and and um and um, understand the the clinical um, a phenotype a bit better because you know one of the the issues that we have at the moment is that um, a lot of patients are doing fine on the medical treatments that we offer but not all of them for certain and as we are throwing all endometriosis more or less into one bucket apart from this relatively crude subdivision of deep endometriosis ovarian endometriosis and superficial um, we still you know use similar tools to treat this and you know we, i think we've we are hopefully learning from other diseases that it is very likely that there will be um subcategories that we're just not aware of um whether it's you know molecular markers that we will have to find or a combination of such markers with clinical symptoms um you know certain uh, imaging modalities also and then you know eventually you identify um, endometriosis X and endometriosis Y and treat that accordingly and, and differently um, um, hopefully that will um, occur in our you know professional lifetime still and thinking a little bit more about kind of all the the still unknown questions within endometriosis and endometriosis care it, what what would be your one question that you could have answered uh, in your career if um, if that was an option for you today? Uh, that's a very dangerous question. Um, you know, I, I just remember when when I was in in, in Boston, um, you know, Judith Fogman, who you know he was always um, you know, in discussion to be you know one of the future Nobel Prize winners, etc. With with his research, and it was you know fantastic. And then. I think in when was it in the 1990s 94 95 or so there there was an interview by the new york times with um um uh, james watson you know uh, dna james watson and you know he was asked um you know what do you think is uh, going to be the, the big thing in the next 
20 years and he says oh it's Judah Fuckman and he was going to cure cancer and you know uh, you know even you know extremely smart people like James Watson um, they can be wrong as we unfortunately know um, so I, I, I do not know but um, I think if, if you just ask me what what I think is more most important um, I think is uh, what I just mentioned is the identification of subtypes of endometriosis and that you know we can may include also you know some genetic studies as well um, and um, and that may also then help us identify um, some diagnostic markers that may only be positive in in some of these subgroups and not for everybody excellent thank you and uh, if we move the the convo on slightly to to yourself and, and you know yourself as a person and, and a person outside of work you know how how do you stay um grounded or how, how do you manage the stress of life um outside of work um so i think you know i turned 50 what, two years ago now i think um and you know with the whole covid situation and so on and you, you know see what thing you know what has happened around us um i you know i think I'm still working hard. I hope that's what, you know, at least I think I am and I hope my, my colleagues will believe that as well. But um, I I think you can only do, you know, so much. And I mean, I have, you know, a lot of unanswered emails. So um, as you know, when you try to connect, uh, try to contact me, probably email is not the best way of doing that. Um, and um, so therefore, you know, I, when I go home, and I still do probably one or two or two or three hours of work sometimes at home. But at some point I say, you know, 10, 10 o'clock or so, this is it, and no more. Um, I, my, my family, my wife, my two uh, fantastic children, uh, they help me to stay grounded. Um, I uh, do um, a lot of, uh, uh, well, not a lot of anymore, but uh, I do sports, I do running. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to... Um, uh, the skiing season, I must say. Um, after last year, it didn't happen. I'm really hoping that this year it will. Um, and um, I guess that's you know what keeps me um, grounded. I guess. Fantastic. Well, I hopefully see you on the slopes one day. I'm sure you'll be well well ahead of me while I'm tumbling down. Um, but no, I think it's it's nice to, to you know, see how how world leaders and, and experts in the field do kind of still need to to prioritize and take times to to switch off i yeah i'd just like to thank you so much for being a guest on this uh, bsg uncut podcast um and it's been been a pleasure having you on and and um if you have any final words or events coming up that you'd like to plug uh, please go ahead uh yeah well thanks thanks very much for the um for the invitation uh, at least i didn't have to say which um disc i was going to take to an island um so that's good <laughs> Um, next time and um, yeah so uh, I think um, I, I want to I want to thank actually you know the patients who are you know working with us um, from a research uh, perspective um, and you know you guys um, here in Oxford and you know the collaborators that we have in the UK and around the world um, so um, thanks everybody not at all and I understand your talk you're speaking at BSG this year Yes, I believe so. Yes, um, another one of your emails. When is it in March? I believe. 
Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, what What are you talking on this year, and, and what can people uh, look forward to? So, um, I believe the title of my talk is. Um, Oh gosh, you put me on the spot now, but I, I think it is how to manage a uh, an efficient uh, MDT meeting. So um, I probably have to really think about that. <laughs> I'm not sure why I was asked to do that, but um, um, yeah, I think our MDT meetings are doing fine. But um, I'm looking forward to um, seeing everybody in in Birmingham then in early March. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to it. I'm, I'm probably see you in the next few days um uh, sooner than march but uh, thank you very much for, for coming on and um yeah stay tuned for the next episode of the bsg podcast which will be coming out in late december